When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board-certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast. And once again, this is not a podcast only for medical pearls and to pass your board exams. Now, if you want that, that's my Beyond the Pearls podcast. This podcast is all about wellness, about health, about putting patients first, by talking about subjects that can help anyone navigate in this complicated medical field with complicated medical words. So, Today's motivation for today's podcast is because, you know, beyond me loving lungs and critical care, I, I actually am a sleep doctor too. And there have been a lot of patients lately that have been seeing me for insomnia and they have a history of seizures. And in fact, I don't want to get super dorky, but I recently had a complicated case where someone had seizures and required something called a vagus nerve stimulator. And I had to go read about that. So uh, I'm always humble when I need to be. And they were getting evaluated for sleep apnea. And I didn't think one could affect the other, but it does. And it just made me realize that seizures and epilepsy and these words are confusing for patients and doctors. And as I got to know my patients better, you know, they asked me some pretty interesting questions where I'm like, wait a minute, I need a neurologist. And lo and behold, one of my bestest friends in the whole world is a neurologist. His name is Dr. John Corey, and what makes him so special is that people always are getting a little nosy, want to know where I did my training and where did I work before being here at USC, and I was part of this amazing hospital family called Abington Hospital, where I met John, and before I introduce him, you know, the routine of the show, I got to brag about him first, so I'm going to be reading John's bio, then you get to meet him, okay? So this is uh, Dr. John Corey. He graduated with a degree in chemistry, graduating magna cum laude from Cornell University. And for those that don't know what that means, he's probably got the highest GPA or he's a top one percentile. So he's super smart. And he received his medical degree from Thomas Jefferson University, 
During his neurology training at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, he was the chief resident and completed additional training after residency in sleep disorders. And that's why he's perfect for the show. While at Jefferson, he received numerous awards, including the Excellence in Teaching Award and an award for his research. And he's a great teacher. He has publications and had presentations at national meetings on topics including sleep, epilepsy, why he's great for today, and stroke. He is currently board certified in neurology and sleep disorders and is a member of the American Academy of Neurology, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, and the Philadelphia Neurologic Society. He joined Abington Neurological Associates in July of uh, 2011. That's when I met him. He is currently serving as the Associate Director of the Abington Memorial Sleep Disorder Center. And with all that being said, Dr. Corey, John, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you, Raj? Good to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. Now, did you like the, the, the intro? Did it kind of build your ego up a little bit? Yeah, I, every time I hear about myself, I always wonder who that guy is that they're reading, talking about. <laughs> well, you know, I do want to say this before we jump into about you, is that John has always been an amazing friend to me. Every time I have neuro questions or sleep questions, even though I'm a sleep doctor, I love talking to him. He's so smart. And I just wanted to, to stroke your ego a little bit more, John. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Raj. As docs, right. we're, we're, we always love hearing that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so let me say this. So, you know, um, I'm reading your, your, your CV. It's right in front of me. So um, were you born in Ithaca, New York? Where were you born? No, I was actually born in Washington, D.C. Uh, oh. I was born in the capital. Yeah, my parents immigrated to this country, but we were still living in Saudi Arabia at the time. And so they were here and they were living between two different countries. And I was I was born in the U.S., but I, I, I lived actually in Saudi Arabia for about seven or eight years when I was really young and then and then moved to Allentown, Pennsylvania, um, where the, the Billy Joel song. You're probably familiar with that one. So that, that's right. Basically, I grew up in I grew up in Allentown, PA. You know, if I knew this Saudi Arabia thing. That's why I love this podcast. Is like I, I learned new things. We should have had a whole podcast about John and Saudi Arabia. That would have been more exciting. Yeah, you could you could do that for sure. Yeah, <laughs> certainly different different times over there. <laughs> so let's uh, we'll start off with you going to an Ivy League school. So it says chemistry, and I got to tell you, John. You know, when I think about a college, I get nightmares. I'm I, I'm getting a little seizure right now thinking of OCHEM and all that things. Why did you choose chemistry as your major? I wanted a challenging major and I did great in chemistry in high school and it seemed like a good extension for me. Um, and I, I think it's great because I think uh, chemistry, especially OCHEM, teaches a lot of critical thinking and a lot of problem solving. And I think that's kind of what ended up kind of sparking my interest in medicine a little bit. When I was in college, I realized I did not want to do chemistry for a living all day long. I didn't like <laughs> being in the lab, that sort of thing. That, that was way different than kind of what I expected. So that's kind of why I didn't go on to you know, get a PhD in chemistry like a lot of my friends did at the time. So when you did chemistry initially, did you know you wanted to be a doctor? Are you like the only doctor in a family? Is your family the type where are they going to be pretty upset if you didn't you know, get that MD? How did you change into pre-med? This is, this, is, this is an interesting question. So I didn't know what I wanted to be for the longest time. I, I really had no idea. And yes, I came from a family that was, um, you know, always pushed me to do do more, do better. I'm the oldest son. So that being in that position, you always get a lot of pressure. 
you have to break in your parents as the oldest son. <laughs> well, uh, how many do you wait, wait? How many siblings? And- two, two, two younger brothers, two younger brothers. Okay. Um, so I, I'm, I'm the oldest of three boys. So there is always a little bit of pressure there, but I, I, I mean, I was going to do something. I, I just didn't know what it was. <laughs> um, I, I, I took all med school requirements in my first two years of, of college, you know, biology, physics, uh, all, all the math that you could imagine. And I took the MCAT and, and I, I, even after taking the MCAT, I still wasn't sure I wanted to be a doctor. And as I kind of went through this, I was like, you know what, I've kind of put myself on this path. I'm, I'm going to see where this goes. Um, so I, I wasn't the type of person that wanted to be a doctor ever since he was six years old. I didn't have some sort of epiphany. It seemed like a kind of a gradual evolution. And as I, I mentioned earlier, problem solving seemed to be what I was really good at. And I think that's what drew me towards medicine as I started going through this, that I was more of a problem solver and I, that's where my enjoyment was. And I think the, the ultimate problem solving is medicine. Uh, and Ooh, that's kind well of how this evolution said. It's, it's almost right. like Dr. House is talking to us over here. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So you made the right decision. You, you did pre-med and obviously you got accepted to medical school. So why did do you just love Philadelphia? Do you, do you love Pennsylvania so much? Why, why Jefferson Medical School? Philly, Philly is just my city. I just, I love being in Philadelphia. Jefferson is a great school. There is, there is, there is so much good clinical work going on at Thomas Jefferson University. It is, it was just a great program to be. Okay. No, I was going to say, now that we're in Thomas Jefferson, you in med school, let me ask you some med school questions, which are two. Oh, okay. Sure. One, All right. number one, like, now be honest, don't lie. Like, what was the hardest top subject for you in the basic science years? And then number two, okay. what was your favorite rotation in the clinical years? Hardest topic in the science years uh, might have been anatomy. I think you get I think you get a bit of a, a culture shock when you get anatomy. You know, you're just you're just <laughs> slammed with numerous numbers of facts that you yeah. have to memorize. So at biochem, I was better at the culture shock of anatomy is that there's all these facts and all these things that you just have to know almost an infinite number. I mean, I'm sure it's not infinite, but it feels that way. I think, I think that was why it was my hardest. I I, I remember spending hours and hours making note cards and flashcards and things like that. Hundreds of hours. Hey, John, did you buy that book anatomy made ridiculously simple? I think all of us kind of owned that at one. I did. I did. I had, I had anatomy made ridiculously simple. It wasn't enough. It still wasn't enough. I I, I think you can memorize that book and still not know near no, it wasn't. It was like a 30 page book that to memorize like 6,000 pages of something. Else. So it was fun. It was an entertaining book, but yeah, like you, you read that in an afternoon and you still have a lot to learn. So, totally. yeah. so uh, the second question mm-hmm. you asked my most fun rotation, uh, believe it or not, I, I actually look back on my OBGYN rotation as, as one of my most fun rotations, I, catching babies and things like that was, was, <laughs> it was my first medical it was my first rotation and so i didn't really know what to expect but it was it was great it also cured my personal insomnia so i got <laughs> i got sleep restriction therapy by accident when i did uh OBGYN. <laughs> so OBGYN was was a fun rotation for me now you know john we're we're the same person because that's my answer to you i mean ob was always a company really agree <laughs> and so let me ask you this so you know you you're finishing med school up you're in that fourth year you're, it's time to do the match so you love the OB rotation. How did yep. you end up doing neurology when you're loving catching babies? Why not psych? Why not peds? Why not just surgery? How did you decide that neurology was yeah. your thing? 
Well, I went into medical school, like many physicians, thinking that I wanted to be a pediatrician because that's really the only doctor you're exposed to when you're when you're, when you're that age. I had I I just I just did not it just didn't excite me that much. Uh, and OBGYN, although as exciting as it was, I didn't see myself as an OBGYN physician. I didn't see myself doing that long term. I wanted something where the field was going to be growing. And that's not to say that OB isn't growing, but I felt like the field of neurology, there was so much to learn. We really don't know the surface of what's going on in the brain, uh, the brainstem, the mind, the nerves. There was just so much to learn, not just for me, but for the world to know. So that's why I thought it would be a really great place to be. I did neural, I did epilepsy research when I was a second year medical student. And that actually started a lot of the foundation for epilepsy. My first publication from medical school came from that second year research study where it was on seizures and and epilepsy. So before starting neurology, you know, most people do a transitional year. So did you do one in medicine and where did you do it? We're required to do a transitional year of medicine. I did one year and I, I basically did it at the same place I did my neurology residency, which was at Thomas Jefferson University. I, I didn't see a need to move for a year and then move back. Uh, so I just, got, I just got stuck in my city of Philadelphia. Now, let me ask you this. I mean, because I'm medicine, you know, I always want to promote my own kind. Was there a small chance that you didn't want to go to neurology and you just loved being Dr. House and just want to do problem solving as an internist? Or you knew you wanted to go to neurology? I felt I wanted to do neurology. And I think a lot of neurologists get this their first year of internal medicine. You you get zero neurology that year and you get bombarded. <laughs> you get bombarded with all sorts of different medical specialties. And you know, more you have even more exposure than you probably ever had. So there is a part of me at that time that was thinking, shoot, did I choose right? Did, did I choose the right one? And that, now on the other side, I definitely chose the right one. But you get you do question yourself while you're going through a completely different specialty for a full year. I've spoken with many other neurologists who, who get that same, who got that same feeling as well. So, you know, neurology, you did your transitional year and you did three years of neurology. Am I correct on that or no? That is correct. Three years of general neurology. So you already did four yep. years, your debt's building up, you're a PGY. Yeah. What motivates you to say, you know what, I'm going to go for sleep medicine. Don't get me wrong. I'm all sleep. I love sleep. Yep. What made you take it to that extra level? I felt I wanted to do sleep, maybe even even more than I wanted to do neurology. I, no. I, I always had a passion. I did. I tell you why. And I learned about sleep medicine when I was in college in a psych 101 course. Oh, really? The psychology, <laughs> prof- the psychology, the psychology professor, Dr. Moss, I recall was his name, mm-hmm. uh, uh, was a big sleep psychologist. And so so he actually inspired a lot of foundational work for sleep. Uh, I found my very first sleep apnea patient, which was my dad, who back in 1998, uh, before it was popular to send people for sleep studies. So he had the huge clunker CPAP machines ever before that thing became a fad. So uh, it started actually early. And then I've always wanted to learn more about sleep because it is just such a fascinating field. Again, there's so much we don't know about the brain, why it sleeps. Um, what we actually need sleep for, what's really going on up there. You know, there's just so many unanswered questions still. And, you know, no, me and you, John, we're, we're like old schoolers. In the olden days, there were only basically three specialties that could go into sleep medicine. They were correct, psychiatry, pulmonary, yep. and neuro. 
So we yep. were special back there. We're not special now, but we were special back no. then. You know? That's right. At the time, at the time we were we were on the forefront of it. So back back to neuro. So, you know, I read your, you know, the CV and the different things that really interest you. So epilepsy, stroke, very important. How did you kind of gravitate towards that? And let me just kind of tease you a little bit. Why didn't you gravitate toward headaches? I think I've, that's, a, that's a great question, I suppose. I think you can't do everything. You know what I mean? Like there, there is only so much. Epilepsy is kind of where I start, what I started with. I did a lot of stroke research. I greatly enjoyed my time at the headache center at Thomas Jefferson University, with Dr. Silverstein and working with them as a resident. Uh, this just where my niche ended up being. And I, I, have a, I have great colleagues that work with lots of headache patients. And I certainly see my fair share of headache patients as well. The, the other areas just took up more of my time, I guess. You know what I mean? Help me understand a couple of things. So sure, John, it, we're going to put you on the wars. You're going to be with a resident or a fellow or even the med student. I'll let you pick who it is. You know, you tell this person like, hey, I want you to conduct a physical examination. And you know, yeah. a physical exam has to be checking those DTRs. And yeah. let's say that medical student slash intern doesn't have their reflex hammer on them. Very few people do. You know what I'm saying? And okay. they actually take their stethoscope, the bell of it, and use that to check the reflexes. Why do neurologists get really upset about that? I mean, is there a reason why... <laughs> The the uh, the stethoscope is not an, appro- an approved reflex hammer uh, in accordance with the American Academy of Sleep Medicine guidelines. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tease you because I don't think there is a formal guideline on the reflex hammer we should use, but it's just not really the best tool. I, I'll put it this way. If you're in medicine and you're just as a medical doctor and you're just trying to get reflexes because you have to check a box off. Yeah, yeah. I suppose that's fine. But if you're <laughs> actually doing it because you are trying to determine, is there a difference? You need a standardized tool to do it. You need an actual reflex hammer to see if it means something, to see if, if there's any meaning there. If you aren't going to care anyway what the result was, you know, <laughs> it, it didn't matter. I mean, if I put my stethoscope and, and listen on your foot for your heartbeat, what do I, you know, if, if I don't care what the answer is, I can put it anywhere. So that's why we always get annoyed. Like, would you, if your intern took the stethoscope and put it on the foot, would you, would, you, would you say that's okay? <laughs> no, and, and I'm always laughing because, you know, I actually rotate in the neuromedical ICU and I, and the most intimidating thing when I watch it is when, you know, the uh, neuro attending the ICU tells the, the poor, it could be fellow or resident to go do that neuro exam and they don't have that reflex hammer and just conducting the neuro exam. John, why is a neuro exam so hard for everyone? I mean, it's not easy. And if you really want to humble someone, tell them to do a neuro exam. Why can't it be a thing for us to do? You know what I mean? I, I wish it was easy. It would make my job a lot easier, but it certainly, it's a very thorough exam. Most people have not had a full neurologic exam by a neurologist, nor does everybody need one. I mean, you just don't need one as a general med exam, but it is just a very thorough exam. It came from the days when MRI, EMGs, EEGs, where we predated that, we had to rely 100% on physical examination. The, the, and that's where the exam comes from. I mean, that, it okay. came from, it predates modern medicine. Now, here we go. So now that we all right. meet and greet and, and we're all happy, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. I, I actually, before this podcast, I put out a feeler to my listeners to say that, hey, we're going to be joined by a neurologist. And if, uh, the topic today is going to be seizures and epilepsy. I 
sent in a lot of questions. I'm going to just tell you this now, and please don't hang up. There's going to be around 20, 25 questions. Are you going to be okay for that? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Let's see. Let's see if I can get through them all. I hope I get them all right. Let's I'm going to read a little statistics here. You know what I mean? I did do my research for sure. The, this is why we're doing this topic today. So more than 65 million people around the world have epilepsy. Around 3.5 million people in the United States have epilepsy. Almost close to 500,000 children in the United States have epilepsy. And the last stat is one in 26 people in the U.S. will develop epilepsy at some point in their life. Are these statistics, I mean, they, they stagger me. It shocks me. Yeah. Are, are yeah. these correct statistics, John? Those numbers sound about right to me. I mean, yeah, well, it does sound about right. That one in 26, that's about 4% or so. That's, yeah, these numbers make sense. I mean, it just makes me feel we're doing the right thing today. So, Oh, for sure, yeah. Question number one, does a seizure mean epilepsy is the question. And can you explain the difference? The definition of epilepsy has actually evolved over the years. So depending when your listeners read about this or learned about this, it's different. So a seizure, let's start with that. A seizure is a single abnormal electrical discharge in the brain. And it causes a behavioral change. It causes a change in you. It causes that, uh, you know, so that's a, uh, that is a seizure. You can have a seizure that causes loss of consciousness or does not. You can have a seizure that does not cause loss of consciousness. Okay. So that's a single seizure. It's a a single abnormal electrical discharge in the brain. Epilepsy is defined after you've had a single seizure. Epilepsy is defined as having a 60% risk over the next 10 years of having another seizure. The The old definition was if you've had two seizures, you have epilepsy. Now we define it based on your risk of having a second seizure in the next 10 years. We determine that risk based on tests, MRIs, EEGs, family history of seizures, uh, causes of seizures. So we determine that risk based on testing and exam and physical exam. That's the definition of epilepsy. It's basically the tendency to have seizures. Honestly, I was in the school of, yeah, two seizures equals epilepsy. I didn't even correct that. That, was, that is old. That is old thanks. school, my friend. Yes. Okay. Yes. You are welcome. You are welcome. How do you categorize seizures? I was of the old school of general and partial. Is there a better right. way? It? How do you categorize them? That has changed. Also, the oh, international league. Yeah, exactly. The international league against epilepsy, which is the nomenclature, the group that names seizures. Okay. Uh, did did a revision? I think about three or four years ago in 2017. But the basic concept mm-hmm. is. You first categorize a seizure if you do or do not lose consciousness that, okay. or awareness or awareness. The old term was simple partial seizure. The mm-hmm. new term is focal seizure without loss of awareness. And then the, the other term would be a focal seizure with loss of awareness, which is used to be referred to as a complex partial seizure. So okay. that's a seizure that just starts in one small area in the brain and stays in that small area. Okay. Okay. So it just stays in a very small area of the brain. Sure. A generalized seizure is a seizure that affects the whole body or generalized tonic-clonic seizure. And that's the one most people are familiar with, full body shaking. There may be loss of bowel or bladder. Um, that is a generalized seizure uh, or no. a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. That's the one that people are most familiar with. Uh, okay. A focal seizure can develop into a generalized tonic-clonic Ooh. seizure. Yeah. Which is which is bad, obviously. Those are how we kind of categorize seizures in very simple terms. Can epilepsy go away? Some types of epilepsy can go away. Certain types of childhood epilepsies can go away. 
see, you can have a remission of seizures where they will just stop that area of the brain basically stops seizing. It could burn out. It just no, no longer has the tendency to seize. So it can go away on its own. It is possible. I don't want to say that that's frequent, but it depends on the type of epilepsy, the type of seizure that you have. So it is certainly possible. And of course, with medications and surgeries, there are other treatments as well, which we'll get to. So uh, epilepsy, does it worsen with age? Their tendency to seize happens a lot when we are younger, uh, as the brain is forming, and there are a lot of childhood epilepsies. Uh, And then there's a period where the the incidence of seizures drops kind of in our our late 20s, 30s, and 40s. And then the incidence of epilepsy and seizures picks up again. Uh, And that's because more problems, we get more problems with our body that can cause seizures, strokes, tumors, things like that. So then those bad things all pop up and those can cause seizures and, and thus epilepsy. Like, so like there is a fall. kind of a people fall and they get right? subdural yep. hematomas sometimes, right? Correct. Absolutely. Yep. Another, another potential cause of seizures. So the, the, the environment can cause seizures in that way. Uh, so like the answer is trauma. it's U-shaped saying that, Hey, you know, when you're young, you know, unfortunately when you're old, but there's a sweet spot like me and you right now, John, in our age group where they may get better a little bit. Correct. The incidence decreased. Like the development of your first seizure is decreased in the in that 30s and 40s age group. Okay. Now, will having epilepsy shorten my lifespan? Unfortunately, especially uncontrolled epilepsy do- can shorten your lifespan. It is a problem, which is why we have to be so vigilant when it comes to taking medications. I mean, just think about okay. the obvious case where somebody could have a seizure and fall in a pool or, or you know, get in a truck oh. or get in a car accident. And all those things can happen to somebody. So epilepsy and seizures can unfortunately shorten your lifespan, which is why it's so important to take your medications regularly and follow up with your doctor and listen to what they have to say. This question, I, I think I know what the answer is, but I just want to hear it from the pro. The listener wants to know, do seizures damage the brain? And w- what's your response to that? Yeah, there's a there's a model called the, the kindling model. So a single seizure is, is probably okay. You might lose some neurons or, or things along those lines, but okay. a, a single small seizure is not going to cause too much damage to the brain in any, in any meaningful sense, usually. Uh, okay. However... Many, many repetitive seizures over the course of years uh, absolutely is going to contribute to changes in the brain and, and, and damages to the brain as well. So, you know, a single one, something along those lines, not great to have, obviously, but most people will recover fine. But frequent repetitive seizures, that will cause problems. That will cause problems with the brain for sure. And, you know, I, I promise not to get dorky on this podcast, but you know what? Yeah, yeah. The answer was yes, is because, you know, when, when I'm wearing the ICU hat, there's something called non-convulsive status. And this is people who are not really shaken because they're on the vent and there's other things. And we really worry about missing this diagnosis as a critical care doctor, even working with my neuro buddies. And they always right. remind me that you, you got to treat these. You got to find these because you're killing brain cells the longer we don't treat these. And so that's why I thought the answer was yes. Am I on the right track there? Yeah, you are on the right track. And not only that, for for that focal non-convulsive status specifically that you're talking about, for that, you're not going to get the patient to wake up if they're having seizures that you're not aware of. Like you'll you'll have difficulty. That's really the bigger thing is that you're really going to have problems getting your patients to wake up. Not to get too dorky, as you said, when and where to use those long-term EEGs. We're, we're still trying to figure that out. There's a lot of controversy as to 
how we can best use these long-term EEGs in the ICU. We, I don't want to get into too much detail on it, but from, from our standpoint, we generally say it is important to treat these seizures, especially if your goal, your primary goal is to get people off the vent uh, and uh, get them out of the ICU. Oh, I like you brought it down really simple at the end. So here's, here's yeah. a question. So a patient wants to know, or just a, a student wants to know, can people feel a seizure coming on? Yeah, so that is referred to as an aura. So the answer is yes, that is a feeling that a seizure is coming on. That is, in fact, actually a seizure in and of itself. Oh, an aura okay. Is, an aura is a seizure. It is a type of seizure that does not cause loss of consciousness, and it can be just a feeling. They are hard to, to capture on EEG, which is our primary test for these. But they're very hard to detect because they're so small. So okay. Yes, you can, you can feel a seizure coming on. Not, not everybody does. And someone can feel one seizure coming on and not a second one. So wow. the answer is yes, you certainly can. Yeah. If someone has seizures and they don't take medications, are they more likely to get seizures in the future? And are there other treatments if they don't want to have be on medications? Yeah. So at, you're absolutely right. If you don't take your seizure medications, you are going to be more likely to have seizures. That, that's why seizure medicines work. They stop yep. seizures and seizure mm -hmm. meds stop that. Your question was alternative options. So there are alternative options. There are surgical options for some patients with epilepsy, okay. and they can actually resect the area of the brain that causes seizures. You actually mentioned the beginning of the podcast, something called the vagus nerve stimulator. Uh, that is a, a surgical <laughs> implant, an implant yes. device that can help stop seizures. And they actually have a really new technique, uh, which is basically almost like a laser therapy. Uh, where they will actually do an ablation to the area of the brain that is seizing. They'll, they'll try to make that area of the brain not work. And that's through almost like a virtual surgery, they say. It's kind of a weird, weird thing to talk about. There's no actual incision being done necessarily. Okay. So, you know, I mean, what, what, I think someone asked one of those questions again at the end, but back to the medications. And I think, you know, names out there, I have patients who are on Kepras and carbamazepines and valproteases yep. and Depakos. I can't even think of all the different names that are out there. Are there side effects with these meds? And what are some common side effects that you tell your patients about? Some of the broad things. Yeah, most common side effects to, to seizure medications, dizziness and sleepiness. I think those are some of the more common ones out there. If you think about it, a seizure is an abnormal electrical discharge. There's too much energy, right? That's being released. So the seizure medicine has to decrease those energy levels and therefore sleepiness, dizziness, fatigue, tiredness, those are the most common side effects. They don't all cause that. They don't all, and so if somebody has a lot of side effects, especially if it's preventing them from taking their medication, they should talk with their doctor about changing that medicine to see if they can find something else that is going to help keep their seizures at bay and help improve quality of life. Here's a curveball for you. I know how your OB-GYN knowledge is, but oh, oh boy. Know oh boy. Oh, I know. I'm kind of intimidated about this question too. So once they're pregnant, what do you do with these seizure meds? There are seizure meds that you should and should not take while pregnant. So the, the most important thing is to plan for pregnancy. If you have epilepsy or if you have a history of seizures, you want to be in touch with your epileptologist, your neurologist, and your OBGYN way before you get pregnant. So you can determine the best course of action, the best meds. There is a, a national pregnancy registry for patients who have epilepsy. So we can follow women and then we can document what are, what are side effect risks to the baby. In general, the recommendation is to continue to take seizure medication. And sometimes we need to go up on those seizure medications because 
your body mass index has changed. So you, we need to monitor those things closely. In general, we would keep people on their seizure medicines because we don't want you seizing throughout pregnancy either. Because no. that can potentially cause harm to your fetus or baby as well. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's why it is important. The most important thing is to plan. And if you haven't planned, just get in touch with your doctor as soon as you get pregnant to have to start having these discussions about medications and how it might affect your your unborn. That I mean, that was a great answer, John. That was I think my favorite one so far. And here's a practical one. What happens if someone misses a dose? You know what I mean? Should they should they double up? Should they just it's no big deal? I mean, I'm sure you get this question quite a lot. What should patients Yeah, for most yeah, for most patients and for most for if you miss a single dose, you'll want to take that seizure med as soon as you remember and you can double up. Um, oh, I just made that up. I d- I didn't know if yeah. that was what you should do. Yeah, you can. Again, it's something to ask your specific doctor about your specific medication, but you certainly can. As soon, if you've missed something and you're taking your next dose, mm-hmm. you can double up depending on the timing and depending on the medication. It's a little bit medication specific, but in general, if you're not having side effects, you miss a dose, take that medicine as soon as you can, even if you have to take two pills. But okay. uh, definitely something you want to make sure to talk with your, uh, your neurologist about if you miss a med. Now, I like this question right here, and it seems like it was maybe a personal question. So they want to know, should they call their doctor every time they have a seizure? So what do you tell your patients, John? It really depends on, on the, the patient's seizure frequency. So if your okay. patient has a seizure twice a week, three times a week, I think if you called your doctor that often, you'll never get through to them or they'll, <laughs> and they'll never get back to you. And right. your doctor will know about that frequent type of seizure. It is important to keep a log for them and keep a track and to ask your doctor specifically, what should you do if I, if I have a seizure? If you're someone who has a seizure once every two or three years, that probably is something you would want to tell your doctor about. Okay. Um, so it really depends on the type of seizure you have, the frequency of seizure you have. And it's definitely a good question to ask your doctor, like, Hey, what, when should I call you for what type of seizure should I call you for? Should I call you for a different seizure? Should I call you for a prolonged seizure? Certainly yeah. if you're going to the hospital for any seizure, you should, your, your, your doctor will get notified from your, the emergency room or, or, or staff that way. For my asthmatics, we have something called an asthma action plan where we kind of send what they should do, who should they contact. Do you have something kind of similar for your patients with epilepsy to kind of tell them what the steps are? Do you go that over with them? Yeah, I don't think we have anything. We have a a formal statement like that, but I generally say what to do when you have a seizure, what is it you're supposed to do when you're Mm -hmm. supposed to call 911, which I generally say is that for a very long seizure, many patients, they don't want 911 because all of a sudden, uh, they, they know they have seizures. They know their seizures are difficult to control. They don't yep. want to go to the emergency room every time they have a seizure. No, they just want, I, to I have their se- want to have their seizure, get done with it, and move on, go, out, go about the rest of their day. So it really just depends. It's a very, very specific and very, very tailored thing. Okay. I think this is going to be a real practical one. So I think someone with seizures sent this question in. So what safety measures do I need to take at home to prevent injuries when I have a seizures? What do you, any general things you you tell your patients? Yeah, I would definitely around the house. You just want to make sure that your general area is safe, that there aren't sharp objects leading around the house. There aren't things on the floor that if you were to fall on that, that you might injure yourself. Um, yeah. Similarly, swimming pools are the big thing. Oh, uh, God. You have a swimming oh, my God. Pool yeah. And, and you're someone who swims. You need to make sure to take precautions if you do or are thinking about going swimming. So that's really even in, even in shallow water, somebody else needs to be there. So those are those are some of the things that are out there. And it's more so precautions. 
not to climb on a roof, that sort of thing. Like things that are obvious. <laughs> You're making me laugh. Okay. Uh, that, know, that, yeah, that's exactly. great. Great tip. I swear a med student asked this question because they want to know if people with seizures should be carrying intranasal midazolam. Now, wait, let me explain what it is for the non-midazolam is a category of drug we call benzodiazepine. And you could give it, I guess, you could sniff it in the nose so you could administer it to someone having a seizure. And benzodiazepines are a category of drug that we use commonly to, to abort seizures. So Dr. John, Don Curry, what's the answer to this one? Should we all have one? All people with seizures have one? Listen, I don't know if everyone with seizures needs to have one. Again, it will it depends on the frequency. I think it is important to use in your armamentarium mm-hmm. and talking to your patients about having something along those lines, a seizure rescue medicine. Certainly somebody who has frequent seizures needs to have one of those. because uh, That way, if there's a family member around or they have a tendency to have prolonged seizures, needs to have one. Somebody with a very rare, very infrequent seizure once every year or two, they've had this pattern and it's a brief seizure. That's probably unnecessary to carry something like that around. But but for frequent seizures, absolutely. Some people, and I will say, I do have patients who have the rare seizures who want to have that intranasal midazolam or an intranasal benzo Mm -hmm. as some sort of backup and or, or some sort of safety measure. That's okay. The thing is, Somebody needs to be able to administer that if the patient themselves can't administer it because right. they're having a seizure. They had a seizure. So uh, uh, somebody needs to be around to be able to give that. Okay. Now, here's a practical one. Is it safe for me to drive if I carry this diagnosis of epilepsy? If not, when will it be safe for me to start driving again? Sounds like a personal that, question. Every state has their own rules as to when you can drive if you have a history of seizures. I know in the state of Pennsylvania, where I'm from, it is six months where oh. that if, you, if you're seizure-free for six months, you can legally drive. Whether you should or shouldn't is really between you and your doctor. And it depends on your EEG and, and, and the types of seizures that you have. I believe actually in your state, Raj, in California, I think it might be two years. I'm not sure about oh. that. Oh, uh, so they have to be seizure-free for two years before they could drive again? Is that right? It, it is different in every state. Okay. I believe California, I'm told, is one of the stricter states and, and might actually be two years. Uh, that That is something that you need to talk with your doctor about. And that's very state-specific as to when you can drive after you've had a seizure legally. Yeah, and I'm sure, I mean, this is a big thing with your patients because, you know, just having that privilege taken away from you, it just really... It's claustrophobic. So, I mean, is this a yeah, it's, question it's one for of you the pri- all the time? It's one, of the pri- it's one of the primary drivers of reduced quality of life. The last yeah. I, I will tell you, Raj, I've given people some terrible diagnoses. But as yep. a neurologist, I get literally the most, it can't be, it can't be, no way, it's not possible when I take away the license. I mean, I will get the most tears from when the license has to be taken away. It's I'm not sure. me that takes away the license, but it's, it's, it's in Pennsylvania, it's the state. But yeah. I, ha- you know, it is it is the law, and it's something that has to be followed. It is it is the primary driver for decreased quality of life. Now, fortunately, we're in a now in a time where we have Uber and yeah. Lyft <laughs> and other services that are available for patients. But that wasn't the case five years ago. It's still not good to not be able to drive, I and mean, that gets expensive, as you know, having somebody else drive you around. But no, no, that, that, that's the law. Well, I'm glad you ended that answer on a positive note. You know what I mean? I don't want my listeners to start tearing up during that part of the seg, you know, so I'm putting <laughs> Uber in there. This one uh, is a, another great question, probably from a patient. They want to know if there's any sports activities that they can't do. And do they need to wear a helmet 
for certain types of activities. And I'm going to chime in and say, after your joke about the swimming pool, I, uh, am I going to be cautious about swimming activities in my patient with seizures? As somebody who wants to do a lot of, who wants to swim a lot and that sort of thing, who has a history of seizures or epilepsy, they just need to be, they need to be cautious. They need to have people around if they are going to be doing something like that. It is something okay. that we say with great trepidation. It can be very difficult to rescue somebody who's drowning, whose body can't move. So no, uh, I say no. that with great trepidation of somebody who says, I really want to swim. Can I? We talk about this sort of thing a lot okay. with patients. With regards to do, does somebody need to wear a helmet? I think that is sports specific, of course. Uh, obviously, no, if you're going to wear you know, you, you can't really play soccer when you when you're wearing a helmet. You can get a lot of head injuries that way. And neurologists in general will tell you. We want to avoid the head for anything, whether or not you have seizures or not. So I think that's a fair statement. People with epilepsy themselves don't need a helmet walking around just, no. just on their day-to-day. -day. Right. Certain types of epilepsies do, very rare types, and uh, but the general patients with epilepsy don't necessarily just have to have a helmet on all the time. I certainly would recommend against football. Even though you wear a helmet in football, yeah. constantly banging your head is just not good for the brain. I would probably... <laughs> recommend against that even for my non-epilepsy patients. So it, you can see there's kind, there's kind of a zone on that. It's to be reasonable and understand like what type of situation you're going to be in. If you're in a high risk situation where you could hit your head a lot, that's not going to be good for you long-term. Uh, and it, it may potentially trigger what's referred to as an impact seizure. If you okay. hit your head really hard on something, you can have an immediate seizure right away. Uh, so you have to be careful about that sort of thing. I, we are in a big treat today for my listeners, you know, Dr. John Corey. I mean, if you missed his bio, I mean, this guy is magna cum laude. This guy is the neurologist, the sleep specialist, all these things. And you're getting some free good tips here. John, you're in the home stretch, right? Do you have enough energy for the, for the home stretch? Yeah, give me the home stretch. Let's do it. Here's a good one. Do patients with epilepsy seizures, do they need to wear a medical alert bracelet? I think that's a good idea. Do you I, tell I, your patients I, to do that? Do you tell your patients to do that? I don't. This is good. I don't go out and say must have a medical alert bracelet on. Again, if they have somebody who's with them all the time, a spouse or something like that, that's probably not as necessary. But somebody who, who is alone frequently, I think a medical alert bracelet is a good idea to have, especially anyone who, who is unable, going to be unable to report their medical history. To have something like that is certainly not a bad idea. So this one will make me tear up a little bit. So playing off the medical alert place, it could be the same person. They want to know they have epilepsy. Is it ever okay for them to be alone? Oh, of course. I mean, I think it is it's certainly fine to be alone. It is a certainly a sad question the way, the way you've asked. But yeah. uh, there are plenty of patients with epilepsy <laughs> who live normal lives alone. We've, we've been talking about all the bad things recently. But of course, there are plenty of people with epilepsy who live alone. And part of it is that they have a, a good management of their seizures. They understand their environment and they understand okay. how they could get help if they needed help, maybe have a medic alert, a button if they need one, something along those lines. Everybody has a phone attached to their hip for a seizure somebody could call if they you know, had a seizure in their house uh, somewhere safe. So it is possible to, to be alone and it is fine. There, there are many people who do that. I mean, is it ideal to have somebody around? Of course. Of course. Uh, many people with epilepsy do live alone, are alone. They have a good understanding of their seizures, when they occur, when they might get triggered, and they have their medical condition under good control. Certainly somebody who's uncontrolled uh, or has yeah. frequent seizures, I think that's probably not a good idea. But all these, all these things you have to take degree and type into account.
So this is actually, and it could be the same person because I'm, I'm sensing a theme here of the question. So they want to know they have epilepsy. Should they tell friends, coworkers, and family members about this condition? And is that something you encourage? So they want to know who should they tell about their epilepsy? I'd be cautious against telling people in the workplace just in general. If you have a medical alert bracelet, that's probably all you would need for something along those lines. That, that, okay. that way, you know, if something ever did happen to you, that's okay. Close family members, I, I would inform. I would cert- like anyone who might have to take you to the hospital or something along those lines. Sure. Um, <clears throat> but I think that's probably the extent of it. I don't tell people to put it on Facebook. You know, your, your medical condition is your medical condition. It's private. It's between you and your doctor. A few okay. other people may need to know. I certainly wouldn't go around telling coworkers. And I think uh, I just just I don't see a need to do it. I don't see what that how that would help you. So I'm trying to put myself in the in the in the question of the of the person who asked it. So I think they're kind of saying when they maybe join a school or or get a new job, it doesn't have to be revealed to everyone about this because I can imagine it being so self-conscious. I mean, I can't never imagine what it goes to having that I'm going to get a seizure. Is it going to happen? Maybe I should give everyone a heads up so they won't look at me, won't stare at me. So it's not like that where they have to let everyone informed that, hey, this is part of my medical history. It's it's only the people who are very yeah. to them. Yeah, yeah, only people who are on a need-to-know basis, right? I think need-to-know basis. Certainly, if you have to miss work because of epilepsy or seizure, mm-hmm. you would let your HR department know, but there are different rules for that. And that's also, I think, state-specific also. My listener wants to know if they can. it's okay for them to drink alcohol having epilepsy and being on, on medication. So two parts being on the medications or just having epilepsy is okay if they drink. Yeah. Alcohol can trigger a seizure. It is certainly possible both taking alcohol and the withdrawal of alcohol. Alcohol is a benzo, (laughs) as we mentioned earlier. Um, is it okay to have an occasional glass like at a wedding or something like that? I tell my patients, it's okay to have a small amount, much, anything more than that. You're putting yourself at risk. You okay. may be able to get away with it. You may be able to not have a seizure after a glass or two, but you you are putting yourself at risk the more you drink. So you have to be careful about that. All right. We kind of addressed this earlier, but I knew I saw this question. So we'll bring it up one more time. So they made it very broad. They said that could brain surgery be effective in stopping my seizures? A big old question point right there. And you were saying as a general, as a generalized question for certain types of seizures, it absolutely yep. can be effective. After you've failed multiple medications, generally two or three, it's mm-hmm. important to see an epileptologist and to discuss alternative options, non-medication options, which do include surgery brain and brain surgery, as we talked about earlier. And there are okay. many different types in this, and that field is constantly growing many different techniques to that, which we won't get into uh, today. But the answer as a general question is possibly yes. Now, are we talking, John, like you had since <coughs> you referred to get the surgery and all of a sudden they're off meds completely? Or was it kind of like they got to reduce the dose? Have you seen just cure from this? Yes, you, you can absolutely have, you can achieve seizure freedom, which is what our goal is. You can achieve yeah. seizure freedom from certain types of epilepsy surgery. Absolutely. So where in the scheme of on one side is going to be surgery, on the other side is meds, this vagus nerve stimulator. And I, I told you, I got, I got a patient who had some sleep apnea induced by the vagal nerve stimulator. I yeah, yeah, yeah. Before, but where does it fit so, in? So, so uh, med- first of all, medications are always first, okay? Yeah. Medications are always first. And what you, because you're always going to do the least invasive thing first. If you're okay. seizure free on a single medicine, you're great. You're fantastic. Quality of okay. life will be very good. 
after you've failed basically the second to third medication, certainly once you've failed three medications, your chance of being successful with a fourth medication are very, very small, you know, basically a percent or two. You want to look into surgical options, as we talked about earlier. The vagus nerve stimulator is an implantable device that goes under the chest and a wire okay. goes up the vagus nerve and stimulates the vagus nerve when you are having a seizure uh, okay. to help prevent further seizures from occurring and to prevent seizures from happening. So that's what the, the vagus nerve stimulator does by basically stimulating the vagus nerve to help stop or make a larger seizure smaller. Ah, now have you had success with that, John? Is that something that in your patient population you refer to? We, we, we have a lot of more options available. The, the vagal nerve stimulator is an, old, is an older tool. Uh, okay. It can be used for certain types of epilepsies, but we have a lot more options now. So that's not one that we refer to more commonly nowadays. There, there are just other options available. That's great. Now, I couldn't resist this, so I accepted this question because I know you're just dying to talk about sleep. Okay, okay, let's hear it. Question is, what should I do if I am having trouble sleeping at night? Is it common to have sleep disorders, and which ones should I worry about having epilepsy? First thing we always talk about, Raj, you know, you know the answer is coming. It's the same thing, regardless of the disease you have, it's to talk about sleep hygiene, making right. sure that we are practicing good sleep hygiene. That we are not drinking caffeine and you know <laughs> after 2 p.m. That we're not having alcohol late in the evening. Um, right. So practicing good sleep hygiene is really, really important. Things like cognitive behavioral therapy, biofeedback, hypnosis can be really, really good to help our mind to turn off and help us yep. fall asleep and maintain sleep. I'm not a big fan of using benzodiazepines for our epilepsy patients in general because when they withdraw off of those benzos, that can trigger a seizure. So we try to avoid those benzos and the benzo-like drugs in epilepsy patients. So I, I hope me, that answers the question a little well, bit. Well, let me, let, me, let me tease you a little bit, John. So please, the, go ahead, please. Would you be uh, interested in using those orexin antagonists? <laughs> yeah, so orexin receptor antagonists <laughs> yeah. are non-benzotherapies, which I, which I do like for <laughs> insomnia in general because they don't affect the GABA system. They don't affect the benzos. They treat your, your wake and sleep center differently. What they do is they turn off the wake-promoting brain. And to the best of my knowledge, there's no contraindications with, with epilepsy for those. That's patients. what I thought. No, that's great. Yeah. And the follow-up question for this person was, what sleep disorders do I need to worry about having epilepsy? What have you been seeing? I think most commonly the one you're going to see is obstructive sleep apnea, hands yeah, down. Yeah, I was going to uh, say it that. Is by, far the, by far the most common sleep disorders. Yep. Uh, epilepsy patients also have higher risk of depression and anxiety, and that causes insomnia. So there's there that link as well. So I think those are probably going to be your top two. What are some signs that my epilepsy is becoming worse? Is there anything that people who have it need to keep an eye on? It's very simple. It's seizure frequency, the number of seizures that you are having and the severity of them as well. So that if you're having, if your seizure frequency is increasing, your seizures, your epilepsy is getting worse. Would you say, John, journaling, having a journal to see what they ate? Oh, a diet. Yes. yes. Triggers a, are. A, a, a diary, a calendar, a seizure calendar. Yeah. There are apps yeah. on the app store. I, a patient of mine just brings in a monthly calendar. And they just document it on a, on a monthly flip calendar. We go through it every month or every couple of months and see, and we count. That is, that is absolutely important. Absolutely. Okay, cool. Someone wants to know how often do they need to see their provider and do they need new blood tests every year? And what do you check in? So just answer it in your practice, John. How often do you? Yeah, so it depends on the frequency 
the more frequent you have seizures, more likely the more frequently you'll need to see your physician, maybe once a quarter, once every few months, once every six weeks. And if you mm-hmm. have the very rare seizure or you're mostly seizure-free once a year, once every six months, something along those lines. Blood work is important for some types of seizure medications where we, we need to monitor levels. Not everybody needs their, mo- their levels monitored at every visit or every year. It will depend, okay. again, on how many seizures you're having or how frequent your seizures are. Look at you. And, and I gotta say, I'm tearing up. This is the last question, but oh. uh, so they want to know what is your opinion about going to uh, support group organizations for epilepsy? Do you recommend it? Is it going to be helpful? I think these support groups are, there's a lot of local chapters for uh, these groups that can help support patients who have epilepsy. There's a really nice chapter, the Epilepsy Society in Philadelphia, which I think does a lot of patient support. So I think it's always good to help promote your cause. And I think it's always good to find support tools. So I think these things can be really helpful. I find them to be much better for patients than online support groups. Cause I think uh, like, okay. like a Facebook support group or something like that, because a lot of times those are somewhat unregulated and unrestricted. And you really just don't know who's giving advice or who's helping you out there. <laughs> so it's important to get some local, both you and I are in fortunate situations where we are in big cities with, with, where there are lots of doctors, there's lots of support, there's lots of people to help create support and support groups. So it might be harder for some people where there's not a large population nearby. Now, now I got to tell you, I, I mean, I have to say my listeners, you're amazing. These were amazing questions. Did they, did they challenge you a little bit, John? Did it make you think? These are all, I, I think standardized questions are always good. I, it's tough to answer standardized questions because in seizures, in medicine, with epilepsy, everything is so patient specific but it's always good to kind of push the envelope, so to speak. Oh, well, you know, let me just say this, you know, um, John, I know you're still at Abington Hospital. I just want to say to you on this podcast that Abington is very, very lucky to have you. And do you promise to tell all our mutual friends that I say hello? You have to go up to the ICU and say hi to my old partners, but tell everyone I say hello. Do you promise me? I absolutely will, Raj. Absolutely. And of course, I'm going to end on this note. If I got another neurotopic, you think down the line, you'll be willing to lend me your expertise again? A- absolutely. 24 questions instead of 25. How about <laughs> make it a deal? <laughs> well, everyone, this is the Dr. Rod Show. We are so blessed to have Dr. John Corey today. I'm going to have my next podcast probably in two weeks. So stay tuned. And thanks again. And thank you, John, for joining us. Thanks, Raj. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.